This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I'm Francesca Maxime. You can always find out more about me and my offerings and my um, anti-racism resources on my website, Maxime Clarity, Clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.com. Um, the Buddha's invitation, if you will, uh, the mindful invitation to see clearly what's really going on. And also um, in our rebootedness to kind of, you know, find our center as we dip into this process of clear seeing, which can sometimes feel unmooring, kind of can sometimes feel a little bit overwhelming, but necessary, I feel, as a path to walk through or to path, walk, to walk on or toward so that we don't skip ahead and we're not spiritually bypassing to some place where we feel as though as we begin to do anti-racism work that we are um, just sort of resting in this place of we're all one and we're all connected, which of course we are. But um, my guest today is going to talk a lot about the ways in which uh, there's been systems um, over and over again of ways that that try to uh, divide and conquer as opposed to as um, in Haney Lopez talks about unite and build. So uh, our guest today is Dr. Jacqueline Batalora. She's written a book called Birth of a White Nation, The, Invent- the Invention of white people and its relevance today. Its second edition will be coming out in Rutledge soon. You can buy this online now or you can wait for the second one next year. Um, Jacqueline Badalora was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. She lived in Antwerp, Belgium for six years before her family relocated to Victoria, Texas. And it was this experience of attending high school and middle school in Victoria that informed her understanding of race in America. While she is currently a lawyer and a professor of sociology and criminal justice at St. Xavier University, she's also a former Chicago police officer. She holds a PhD from Northwestern University and has been engaged in anti-racism training since the mid-1990s. Welcome, Dr. Batalora. Jacqueline, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining us on Rebooted. Thank you for inviting me. It's really an honor to be here. You know, the first thing I want to say is... um, 
well, actually, I want to backtrack and I just want to say, I want to acknowledge the land I'm on, um, the ancestral land, the Nipmuc land that I'm on here in Massachusetts. And although it can seem performative when I don't spend a lot of time just um, really unpacking that completely, I just want to at least name it and, and name gratitude for my ancestors also that brought me here from Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and from uh, Italy. So just... Um, Reading your book this summer, in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of the uprising, in the middle of the protests, um, I'm doing this podcast with you on August 26th, and it was just a couple of days ago that Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back, um, unarmed by a white police officer in Wisconsin. And this is after we have sort of had a, a, a reckoning of some sorts with um, the murder of George Floyd. And I'm wondering, how did we get here? And, and I feel like this book helps explain how we got here. So um, so, so maybe just inviting you in to just sort of sit, take stock of, uh, of this moment, uh, knowing all of what you know, and then maybe we can unpack some of the specifics. What's, what's happening right now? Well, I think what's happening is we're, we're seeing revealed through the actions of, of one particular institution, right, law enforcement, which, um, and there are two, I think, fields where the enactment of our social problems is most visible and most extreme um, because they leave bodies behind. And that's law enforcement and healthcare, right? Mm. And, and it's those two areas in society right now where we are seeing um, one, the law enforcement part we are seeing because of these things, right? Yeah, the phones. Uh, yeah, phones. because without without that, the, the, the narratives that whiteness have taught us would have dominated and, and formed what really happened, how those people really are and what they really deserved. But now the visual um, and audio and other parts that are captured are a disruption. Now the, the narrative that people of color have been saying for decades, if not centuries, is is being revealed as a, a closer truth. And, mm. and so in that case, the pandemic is what is um, revealing many social problems, but, but that is resulting ultimately in, in the death, dispropor significantly disproportionate deaths of indigenous people, persons of African descent and Latinx. And actually, I, I just read yesterday, I was looking at the John Hopkins page where you can get so much information that um, Asians in the United States also have a higher um, infection rate. Mm -mm, right. So these two places that are so alive right now, COVID and um, the uprising, the protests, really point to uh, having certain populations that are non-white be more adversely affected. Right. And why are they more adversely affected? And that's where my work, I think, comes in and, and helps shed light on, on what's going on. And I would um, really, I just want to be honest about what we call it. I don't usually go here on the front end. I usually wait till the back end. But it it's institutionalized white supremacy. And it's nobody's fault. It was here before we all arrived. It's not even our parents' fault or grandparents' fault. Um, it it is a baked-in feature of this country, of, of every law and policy that has been birthed out of this country. 
is built upon a foundation of white supremacy. And um, that's what the law and history that um, my research tries to tell. Um, it works to expose that and help people just understand. And if if we come to the present moment and, and the uprising and the pandemic with, with the understanding of the multitude of ways in which white supremacy has played a role in 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 allowing these two things at this moment to to be played out the way they are before our eyes um it it gives us a critical piece of understanding so we can do something different but without that understanding you know i'm always um so frustrated with an academia that we're sending these these young people out to go, you know, and telling them go solve these problems, go change law enforcement, mm. you know, go change law, without this sort of understanding of what got us here and how, um, you know, they just don't have cr- the critical tools needed. Um, to really get us somewhere new. You're talking specifically about the way in which law enforcement, police officers, men and women are trained and and some of the things that they just don't know, they're just not trained in, that are just not shared. Yeah, that's yeah. a piece of it. The the Truthfully, the whole institution itself, I mean, we're hearing questions and critiques of it now, defund the police and, and you know, which is kind of, nobody's quite sure what exactly that means. It's still kind of taking form as its own critique. Um, and what, what I think is exciting about it is that it is calling on us to step out of this normative place, right? Our normative taken for granted assumptions about institutions and how they work and inviting us to imagine something different. Mm. Right. And so I, I always think that, especially because what, what do we know about the institutions we have? Well, we know that they privilege white people, whether we asked for it or not, whether we wanted it or not, again, baked in, um, and disadvantage uh, communities of color. And so um, it's time to imagine something new. Yeah, beautiful. And, and, and just on that last point you just said, and it is that the privilege is there because the lack of access and opportunity and the disadvantage was baked in, meaning Absolutely. that 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 there's that there's more here because there's less available or given right. here. It's a flip side of the same coin, right? So one side of the coin gives stuff to white people, whether and, and let let me just concretize that. Let's let's give a concrete example. So in the very first Congress of this country. Um, had to establish all the laws of the United States, including immigration and naturalization. And our founders determined that in order to naturalize, which is the legal process one must go through to become a citizen when you're not born in this country, in order to naturalize a U.S. citizen, our founders um, said you have to be white. Okay, so again, baked in, founding law, lasted more than 150 years so that immigrants who came to this country who were seen as white got this advantage, this access to citizenship, not because they knew something, not because they were better people, not because um, even they had the right religion, right? We had uh, people who were seen as white, but who were um, Jewish, Muslim, um, and other faith traditions uh, got access. Whiteness was the requirement, whether male or female, 
whether rich or poor. So, um, so that's just an example of whiteness being conferring something. Okay, so that's one side of the coin. White immigrants who came here got something, whether they asked for it or not, whether they wanted it or not, it was baked in, a feature of law. And the other side of that same coin is that those who were seen as not white were disadvantaged, right, excluded. And so uh, what, what it served to do is to keep not communities, people seen as not white, because who knows what white is, um, it, it kept them in a position of being cheap and dependent labor. So it, it was always serving the interests of the capitalists, the ruling elite. Um, and in addition to that, it kept them subservient to, to the white people generally in a position below them. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So much of what you're saying is, is just so important. And there's so many little places that I want to pause because I want to I underscore that what we're talking about is, you know, we're looking at a system that was constructed over time with things like the Naturalization Act that then created this place where certain people who had certain melanated levels were unable to have citizenship for American citizenry and that other people with whatever was deemed sort of arbitrarily, since race is a social construct, we can go back to Carl Linnaeus and the other folks who kind of came up with this idea, um, that, that this wasn't a thing until they made it into a thing for the service of this capitalist interest and division and whatnot. Um, because God forbid, if all the laborers got together and joined, then that would be a critical mass that would then be a threat to the smaller group of wealthy elite that were in power. And that's why this argument is always about power, equity, control, and wealth and redistribution and reparations sort of seems to be not only opening of the heart as the end game, but also like, what does that look like? And to use your term, concretization. Um, But I'm sort of bouncing all over the place with what I'm saying, but just sort of coming to mind. Can you, from the very beginning, you said, usually I say this at the end, but now I want to say it at the beginning. And you said, um, you said white supremacy, when I think a lot of people hear white supremacy and they hear us ex- existing in a white supremacist world, I think a lot of folks feel like that has to do with neo-Nazis or that has to do with far right. And and can you just further just sort of clarify what you mean by this being the system we're in, whether or not you like the term or not? I also use the term whiteness as a construct, as a, as a series of systems, not that people with light skin are bad, but that this is a system of whiteness that is about suppression, about oppression, about a perceived superiority. So if you could just sort of do that and then we can move on. Well, as I said before, when I was hesitant to even use the language on the front end, look, when, when, when you know the history of the emergence of this category of humanity called white people, and you unpack the laws, look, before a particular specific moment in time in colonial North America, if you look in the legal record, there is not one reference to anybody called a white person. You won't find it. It doesn't exist. And then at a very specific moment in time, you see bundles of laws um, passed in in groups. And and that's all. You always want to pay attention to, to those sort of events right? Because it lets you know something big is happening. They're trying to cause or create a, a major change or responding to a huge threat. And so we see the assertion of now these people called white people for the first time following this massive rebellion that, that 
tied up the colony of Virginia for well over a year. But here's the important- Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion. Nathaniel Bacon led this huge rebellion and it ultimately wasn't put down until the English sent in troops. I mean, it was huge. And what's important to note before I get to what happened after the rebellion is for folks to realize um, this piece. And this is something that when I um, when I lecture and, and share um, keynotes with audiences, people are most surprised by this particular bit of info. <clears throat> and that is this, that during the first three quarters of the 17th century, so um, until the late 1600s, Persons of African descent and persons of English descent and other Europeans who worked on the same plantation were treated the same. They worked together, they ate together, they slept together. Um, So daily life was experienced the same. There is a significant difference, and that is that persons of African descent were claimed by Europeans as enslaved, as property, and persons of European descent who were laboring on plantations uh, were owned as well, but for a term of years. The, so they had an endpoint. And so that's, of course, a very significant difference. It also was not at all uncommon during this time period for there to be free people of African descent. And so we know from the historical record that um, the the number one route, if you will, <laughs> to freedom for, for persons who had been enslaved was uh, they were able to purchase their own freedom. They had side jobs. Um, and many had really valuable skills uh, that they were able to use to purchase their own freedom and that of family members. The other way in which freedom could be realized was through um, the wills and trust of plantation owners who freed um, people they claimed as enslaved. And so, again, it was not at all uncommon for there to be free people of African descent. And free men of African descent and free Englishmen and, and other European men if you were free, you had the same rights and privileges as a matter of law. Mm. So what did that mean? That meant uh, free men of African descent could vote, and they did. They could hold public office. They could um, own enslaved persons of African descent, and some did. They could own indentured servants. Some did. Um, and so, so you have to realize that context before shifting to what happened after Bacon's Rebellion. Right. Um, And and Bacon's Rebellion itself reflects the the unification of people of African descent, European descent, of enslaved, indentured, small farmers. Like it was the masses of the people in the colony of Virginia were united. Um, It would be nice to reference Bacon's Rebellion as this sort of historical model we could look to to guide us, but we can't because the first phase of the rebellion was a complete slaughter of indigenous people that surrounded the colony of Virginia. It was the second phase that's a little more promising (laughs) as something to look to um, as a model. And that, pardon me, is when they focused on the ruling elite. Um, And what what was happening right before the rebellion is that that, uh, people began to be treated worse and worse and plantation owners were trying to hold on to their the people that they held as laborers um, because their labor supply from Europe had ended. But up until until the 1660s, they had a a readily available supply of of human labor 
that could be shipped over. But that ended around the 1660s. Mm. And so they were panicked about how the work on the tobacco fields was going to get done. And so they would, um, for, for relatively minor infractions, they imposed these really long extensions on people's term of indenture um, and did a whole variety of things to treat both enslaved and indentured laborers much worse. And so it was without of that environment that Bacon's Rebellion um, erupted. And during that same period when um, workers found themselves treated much more harshly, uh, a very small group was getting very, very rich. Mm. And so, you know, that resulted in the clash. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think that's so important. And thank you for sharing that because I think that people think that in some ways, like it was always this way or, you know, and, and, and it wasn't, it was more, I don't want to say it was, it was more equal. It was more, I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't, there weren't problems or that, you know, ownership of anyone at any period of time is, you know what I mean? We're not, but, but, but that, but that it, 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 just it was more equal and there was opportunity that there wasn't those constructs around based on melanin level you can or cannot be a human being you can or cannot be owned absolutely I, I think we have come to treat it as inevitable as almost um as if seeing someone based upon their melanin level um it, i think we have come to to treat um or or to perceive the treatment of people based on melanin levels as if it's something innate and it just isn't. <laughs> and history shows us that it isn't. Right. Uh, and in this country, our own history shows us that it isn't. Well, what I think is so interesting, what you're saying is, and, and I was speaking with another um, clinician who works on sort of uh, the way in which we as human beings perceive threat and, you know, sort of that othering and sort of tribalism that we've heard of. Maybe you would have people call of it as a evolutionary negativity bias around like, you know, uh, if you don't look like, if you're not familiar to me and if there's uncertainty there, it's in my best interest from a very sort of lower brain, you know, uh, fight, flight, primal. or freeze kind of primal brain response to kind of like, check you out, hold off and not just be like, Hey, of course, we're all just like peace, love and hair grease. Like, we're just like, you know, like what, like, who are you? And I'm not so sure. And, you know, and, and that, and that that is sort of a, a thing that when married with this idea of this construction of one particular melanin level being better than the other one. And that it's the familiarity piece. It's the safety piece, right? That's, that's missing. It's the unfamiliar piece that that creates then fodder for this system. And what I hear you saying, which is so interesting, is that it didn't exist. No. And part of it, I'm wondering, and this is just me sort of theorizing here, is that they all knew each other because they were all laborers doing the same work. So it wasn't like there was an other there and there wasn't the construct of the melanin being the other because they knew they were all stuck doing the same crappy work. And so there was, there was a sense of unity and community in their horrible lot, if you will, as having to be these laborers that they were, that in some ways they could trust about one another. That I oh. think perhaps... I just wanted to add, I mean, I think today we're doing the same work, you know, but we don't see ourselves as the same because of what happened after Bacon's Rebellion and, and has been deeply institutionalized in this country, mm. right? So, so I don't know if it's doing the same work because we're doing the same work today. 
right? Mm. I, I work alongside various melaninated people, but but we have because of of whiteness um, and and how it shapes our lives and our perceptions. Um, I think it it causes us to have radically different um, understandings of each other today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that 100%. Um, so we talked about Bacon's Rebellion. We talked about the Naturalization Act. And there's other, you know, things that you that you really point to um, that are that are really critical. Um, Noel Ignatius, uh, you talk about um, him. Why is he important? <laughs> well, no, Noel Ignatiev. Ignatiev. Is, uh, yeah, I know it's a mouthful. <laughs> I'm butchering it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. He'll forgive you. Uh, you know, he wrote this terrific book and, and a number of articles. Um, the book title is How the Irish Became White. And what's uh, so important about that story is that it helps to reveal that um, whiteness isn't even, if you look historically, hasn't even been about melanin. Right, because when the Irish Catholics came, they were not seen as white at the local level, and they weren't treated as white at the local level. And so they had to. His book tells the story of how I, Irish Catholics who began coming in the 1830s had to fight for their whiteness and how they did it, and that ultimately they did it on the backs of people of African descent. Mm, yeah, it yeah. It was so. by pushing themselves away from. Um, uh, melaninated people, especially those of African descent, um, that played a significant role in their success of becoming white. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because it feels like this rugged individualism, meritocracy, Western capitalism driver that we've been fed for so long, that there's something there in the psychology of, of what you just described with the Irish Americans about like um, aspirational, like I'm like white, also these people who are 1% billionaires or whatever the equivalent of a billionaire was back in the day, you know, like that, that I might be able to be like them, but you know, my lot is really still crappy because I'm really still a laborer. But this mm -hmm. like, like this little one molecule of maybe <laughs> seems yeah. to be part of what is fed and, and, and used even today. It's true. I, <clears throat> pardon me, I often um, in my classrooms um, see that my um, white students feel a greater affinity to, to like a Paris Hilton or a Melania Trump than they do to their Latinx or African American, um, Native American fellow student, you know, hmm. and and so the power of whiteness um, to create links <clears throat> or perceived links where where the reality of that difference is so huge um, uh, is part of the power and the the mirage I think of whiteness. Mm -mm. So interesting. So interesting. That's there for you today. Um, I'm just kind of just bouncing around a little bit. I know it's sort of disorganized, but um, I'm curious. I'm, I'm looking at the notes that I took in my book. Maryland law of 1681, first time legally used word white as a classification. Um, you say this early on and you spoke a little bit about it earlier, but that, that this was actually a law. And I think that you're a lawyer. And so it's important that like 
you know what you're talking about, that like this was codified as part of what was legal in the U.S. in much the same way that people think, oh, everybody has the same rights. And, you know, like, for example, Black women didn't really get the chance to vote until 1965. And a lot of people think that it was in 1920 and it really wasn't. Right. Well, it's part of that white people's experience defines American experience. Mm. We have a long pattern of that. Mm, Got it. And so this idea, and as you say that, I'm thinking of the canon of literature that, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, we were fed in college and like, Mm -hmm. who's really, who are we really reading and why? I mean, I happened to read a lot of James Baldwin and a lot of like Ray Bradbury and that kind of thing at the time and Foucault um, about power and equity. But um, okay, so what are some of the other critical laws in terms of punishments also, because one of the things that you talk about, and and this is really getting into the heart of some of the really sticky, like, I guess, trigger warning pieces that I want to say for people, because this isn't pretty. And this is also stuff that if you know, it may help you know something with your left brain in an intellectual way, but it also may be so abhorrent to you as a human being that you may find that there's a shift in heart or belly around it that may feel like overwhelm or may feel like too much or it couldn't be. And you may even want to kind of not pretend like it's not true. Um, but also I just want to name that up front and, um, and say like, there were laws that systematized, for example, um, and sanctioned and rewarded the rape of Black women for the, <clears throat> as you mentioned earlier, continued uh, supply, as it was seen, labor for the landowner who was the rapist, and that there was no way out there in terms of children of a mother who was already being assaulted and that that's one huge piece. And then there's another huge piece where like if a white woman and a black man were to be together, for example, that she would then become property or lose her citizenship and all of that. So can you talk about some of the ways in which legally this was all constructed? Absolutely. So, so I want to tie it back up. So recalling that for the first three quarters of the 17th century, um, people of African laborers, anyway, of African descent and European descent working on the same plantation experienced life daily the same and, and free persons of African descent and free Englishmen had the same rights and privileges by law. So then we have this massive rebellion led by Nathaniel Bacon um, called Bacon's Rebellion, and it is ultimately uh, put down, but only after the uh, well over a year and after the English sent in troops. And so we know that after the rebellion's put down, that, um, and we know this from the work of um, Theodore Allen, and he digs into the letters being written between the ruling elite in Virginia and the legal oversight authority in London, right? They have control over all the laws of the English colonies. Mm-hmm. And so the, the ruling elite in Virginia tell the oversight authority in London, do not worry, we have this under control. Um, because of course, the folks over in um, England are not feeling very secure about mm. their colonies at this point in North America. And so the folks in Virginia say, don't worry, we have this under control. And they indicate that they plan to pursue a divide and conquer strategy. And so it is in the decades following Bacon's Rebellion that we see for the first time the reference to anyone called a white person in law in North America. 
And when you look at the bundles of laws that asserted this group of people called white people, we see that that white people were used to radically transform the society that had existed for uh, 75 years. Mm. One where people of African descent and European descent on the same plantation were treated the same and once free had the same rights and privileges as a matter of law. That ended and it ended through the assertion of white people. And when you look at the laws, in fact, let me concretize it. I'll, I'll give um, an example of a few laws that were passed on the front end. Um, the very first law where we see a reference to anyone called a white person um, is in 1681. And it was actually an amendment to a law <clears throat> that um, sought to punish English, the first law said English and other freeborn women who marry enslaved Negro men. You have to remember there were roughly eight to 12 men for every woman in the colonies of Maryland and Virginia. So mm. women were a hot commodity. So you had these English women marrying um, in Maryland enslaved uh, men of African descent. And so lawmakers wanted to stop that from taking place. And so what they did was um, passed a law that punished women who did so. And so it wasn't insignificant. So a woman who entered into such a marriage, she was enslaved for her husband's life and any children that they have are enslaved. So the consequences rather were significant. Mm. And they explained that their intention in passing the law was to quote, deter these shameful matches, end quote. The Opposite, however, is what took place. Because imagine you're a plantation owner. What do you think of that law? It's awesome, right? Your property, as soon as she says, I do, your property value just went up. And, mm. and then should they go and have children, your property value goes up again and again. And, and so rather than deter the marriages, um, they increased. And so it's not until 1681 that lawmakers in Maryland amend that law. And this time in this amended law, we see a reference to people called white people. This law punishes, quote, English and other white women who marry enslaved Negro men. This time the lawmakers got it right, though, because this time they impose a punishment on anyone found to have encouraged the marriage. And they also imposed a punishment on the person who performed the marriage itself. Mm. And and so let, let me give a few examples of laws. That that law would be called an anti-miscegenation law. Right. They are laws that made it illegal for white people to, to marry always a person of African descent. Every anti-miscegenation law passed in this country uh, prohibited a white person from marrying a person of African descent. Um, some laws, like California's is one of the longest laundry list, they prohibited white people from marrying persons of African descent, Native Americans, Asians, um, Pacific Islanders, and Latinx. All mm -hmm. were um, prohibited. And so, uh, and, and those depended on the demographics of, of a particular region. So what we see after Bacon's Rebellion, don't forget, um, prior to this moment, the level of melanin didn't play a significant role in one's daily life and how they were treated if one were free. Mm. And so now that will never be the same because what they did after Bacon's Rebellion was pass these laws that gave different meaning to groups. Mm. One called white laborers and the other not. 
And so uh, a law was passed that required that a white laborer be paid certain goods upon completion of their term of service. Another law made it illegal for a person of African descent to be in possession of gun or powder. Another law um, prohibited uh, white people from marrying persons of African descent and members of native tribes, Mm -hmm. men or women. This one, this particular law wasn't restricted to women. The Maryland law was first only about white women. And then um, it was amended in the 1690s to um, prohibit both men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another law was passed that, um, and I want to spend a minute talking about this law, prohibited persons of African descent from testifying against white people. Mm. So you have to imagine, like, try to imagine you're in this time period, right? You're, a, you're among the masses, you labor. <clears throat> and let's put yourself in the shoes of someone, <clears throat> pardon me, who is from England. Now you're being told you're what? You're, you're a white person? <clears throat> what is that, first of all? Um, and who is? You know that you are, right? Because the language of the law says English and other white. Sure. So we know that English, you count as one. But what does that mean, right? We know what English means, but what does white mean? Well, let's look at just that one law, the law that prohibits people of African descent from testifying against white people. What did, what did they learn about what it means to be white through just that one law? Right. Yeah. It means you dominate. It means you can treat a person of African descent however you please without fear of prosecution unless a white person will testify against you. Yeah. And so what did people of African descent learn that day through just that one law? You better be passive and submissive to this new group of people called white people or else. Mm. And and. There's another even more sinister piece of this law uh, that I want to raise up because we're still living in the midst of it today, 2020, and that is this. I'm going to again say the law, it prohibited people of African descent from testifying against white people. That law reveals that the law is aligned with the interests and perspectives of white people. Right. The law itself. Right? So drink that in and then think about where we are today. And and that law that prohibited people of African descent from testifying against white people, we see that throughout U.S. history. People, uh, Mexican people found themselves unable to testify against white people. Um, Chinese, then Japanese, uh, Asian people found themselves unable to testify against white people. Um, And so this law was used, it clearly worked for the purposes of the ruling elite, or you wouldn't see it throughout U.S. history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love what you're saying, even though it's horrific and sinister, as you say, but I love the specificity with which you're breaking this down because I think it can help us understand when people look at a Derek Chauvin and for eight minutes and 46 seconds, just sitting there, um, very nonchalant in the way that he is like literally, you know, sort of in the midst of, of, of what is a modern day lynching by, you know, neon neck. And that it seems so cavalier and casual and yet an entitled, there's that cooked in entitlement there piece, which like you're saying has been codified. So 
and, and, and further reinforced, obviously, by the whole piece of being a, a, a police officer. But that also when you're talking about, well, you know, because there was a lot of conversation also at the time about, well, who are the people who were around? Who are the people who are watching? Who are the people who are witnessing this? And this idea of, you know, you've heard people say silence equals violence and sort of this idea of being the passive bystander and what does it take to actually intervene, whether it's a frat house fraternity gang rape or whether it's something that's happening equally murderous or violent in, in the streets as we saw and, and what keeps people from doing that. And what you're suggesting here is that that seed was planted so deep, so long ago about protest, about no, this isn't right, this isn't humane, that it becomes, I don't want to say easier, but more of the default to not step in. Well, and I would push it even further. And I, uh, we talked about this in the green room before we started about the fact, here's, here's what, and I know this, um, and I'm happy to share something from my own experience about this awareness, but sure. I know that whiteness, this systematized, um, dynamic interaction that's that plays out from the moment of one's birth in this nation um, that positions white people above is through through all of our systems through pop culture I mean it's everywhere you think about the education that we have and you know who's celebrated who's whose stories count um, and and just the pervasiveness of whiteness and so what what being born into a culture that um, enacts whiteness every moment of every day through literally every institution, how that lands and sh- lands upon and shapes white people is is such that it diminishes our humanity, right? It, if if we begin our understanding of a healthy human being, um, at least a critical component of what constitutes a healthy human being sure. is someone who has empathy, right? And so um, let me sh- just share with you, if you don't mind, it'll, it'll no. take a couple minutes. But no, I, I, no, I love hearing stories. I think they're yeah. really, really evocative. And I, I, I know now that I was able to get to this moment because of the work I was doing, the research I was doing, I, I absolutely know it opened me up. Um, so, so let me tell you quickly tell you a story. So I, w- I was in graduate school at Northwestern. I came home one day. I just wanted to check out. You know, I turned on CNN, which was the only 24-7 news at the time. And the journalists were covering a shooting on a Long Island train where about, I think about six white people had been um, killed. And so I was watching them, you know, talk to survivors and witnesses and and i i was so sad by thinking about you know children who would never see a parent again parents who would never see a child again um and i you know i had tears in my eyes and i was really shaken um for the rest of the evening um and i i just kept thinking about how so quickly so many lives were radically um changed and what a loss that was mm. and so i went about my next few days getting up, going to classes, um, doing my graduate school thing. And about three or four days later, I came home, plopped on the couch, turned on CNN. And on this day, the news was covering um, the 
killing of three people of African descent. And I got up and made dinner. And while I'm chopping and waiting for water to boil, I have, for the first time in my life, I realized that I had no empathy. I, I wasn't thinking about children who now had a parent not coming home, about parents now having mm. a child not coming home. I had no tears in my eyes. I didn't have shit. I had nothing. Mm. And the crazy thing, Francesca, is that had you asked me if I cared about all people equally, the a millisecond before I had that awareness, first of all, I would have been offended by the question. Right. Second, second, I would have answered loud and clear in the affirmative. And third, and perhaps most troubling of all, is that I would have believed it completely. Mm. But now, now I couldn't, right? Now I was shaken. I, I thought I was a good person. I, I, I did all the things that my society had taught me. You know, I volunteered, I recycled, I, I um, yeah. donated. You know, I was doing things I thought made me a good person. But now I was confronted with this empathy gap. And so I, I was very troubled by what I discovered about myself. Um, and, and so I just started paying attention to, to my empathy when I had it, when I, I realized very quickly, I had a boatload of empathy for puppies and kittens and dolphins and turtles and polar bears and on and right. on. And I, right. I don't say that to mock that because that is healthy and good. But when you contrast it with not having empathy yeah. for um, pe- people based upon melanin, it, it helps, I think, helps us see how problematic and disturbing that is. Okay. And so I had this moment and I thought it was just me. I thought Jackie Battalora is damaged. Here's the other thing. As soon as I had that awareness, I knew right away I was not born that way. I knew it. I knew that something had been done to me. Mm. And I have spent my career figuring that out. And now I have a word for it. It's called whiteness. I didn't then. Um, and, and so, and so that's, an an awareness um, that I had. And so I thought it was just me. And then when I worked as a police officer, uh, which I did after I had a PhD. um, So interesting. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. Which is all related to this, actually. Um, Latonya Haggerty, unarmed black woman, shot and killed. The next week, Mark Russ, um, African-American undergraduate student at Northwestern, unarmed, shot and killed um, by a traffic, through a traffic stop situation. And I couldn't shake. I thought the city was going to be on fire. And, and it wasn't because the police officers were that um, themselves were of African descent. I think that was used to modify um, how people received it, but I couldn't shake it. And so I wanted to explore the system that kept doing this. And this was way before, you know, Trayvon Martin. Right. And so I went and um, became a Chicago police officer. So, but while I was a police officer, here's what um, I was part of and what I realized. So um, it, it was in the 1990s and early part. So I was part of the back end of the um, crack epidemic, right? And so crack disproportionately, uh, crack addictions um, disproportionately impacted black and brown communities. And how did we, the people of the country respond? Right? We demanded that our lawmakers be tough on crime. We, we were 
we actually demanded that our tax dollars flow into a militarized uh, law enforcement and into building prisons to put people away. Jump to the 2000s. We have an opioid epidemic and those communities disproportionately impacted our economically advantaged white communities. And how do we, the people, respond? As we see this as a as a health crisis, yeah, right? it's completely different. Say lock them. It's up. a mental health issue. It's a substance abuse issue. Seek treatment. Because give support. That's because we see white people as human beings, mm. and we do. And so I realize and entitled to help. Oh, I, we have empathy for them, so we will help them, right? So mm-hmm. the, the what I saw in me, just me, that one day. I, I began to realize is in my society yeah. that there is something wrong with white people. Um, and, and we see that, we see what is wrong with white people reflected in U.S. society all over the place. For me, I, I saw it most clearly through how we um, approached crack epidemic versus, versus opioid. And, and you and I are seeing it and, and listeners are seeing it all around us right now in this moment. Right. And I, I really so appreciate the, the the very specific human story that you have there around what you're calling the empathy gap, which I think is actually a really great, you know, sort of placeholder name, title, whatever, of, of what this really is about, right, at a core level. And um, and 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 I want to also just sort of like translate some of what you're saying into um, what I'll call mindfulness language, uh, which is around the idea of that you came to this place of awareness. And when you had that aha moment of insight, as we would call it in Vipassana traditions or the Theravadan traditions, that it's this idea of sort of seeing deeply, seeing clearly, and that you were contemplative and reflective on that, but that there was a portal that opened and that it questioned your own morality, that you had to question yourself of your own value. There was this sort of looking in the mirror. You did a U-turn. You turned the eyes inside and you sat with that. And then you began to feel, I think, this heartbrokenness that some of our current Dharma teachers talk about, Ruth King, Lama Rod, this idea of being remorseful, being sad, being open. And that that is sort of the Leonard Cohen point of, you know, the crack is where the light gets in. And that that then continued to propel and fuel your work. You didn't get stuck there, but you did let it permeate you in such a way that you not only were feeling it and reverberating it as empathy does, but they used it from that very sort of soft and overwhelmed place to this place of what the Dalai Lama talks about in terms of compassionate action, that the point of the insight is to actually then take this to move into a place of being able to join and reclaim our humanity of what was taken, which you have called whiteness and which is this systematized structure, which in mindfulness language is really about causes and conditions. And that if the imprintings from a neuroscience, neurophysiological level around our lower brain, our midbrain, or our limbic brain, you know, sort of our, our limbic hijack that Tara talks about when we get into this place of, you know, sort of frozenness or, 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 or just wanting to defend versus our prefrontal cortex, that we have to learn to be with these different places, know that they're existing so that we can then show up differently with ourselves and others. And to make that initial assumption, I'm a good person. It's not me. How dare you say that? If you were to point it out to me versus me to come to it on my own and then doubling down, right? Yeah. And we see this and that kind of is what people will then come out as white fragility, or, you know, it'll be like overwhelm and all of that. So I just wanted to kind of sort of- I love that. Thank you. It's wonderful. (laughs) 
(laughs) Well, I I just, because the listeners here, I think have a bit of a framework and they'll also say something like, well, we're all love, we're all devotion, we're all about this. And there's sort of this tendency that I see in these communities to sort of say, you know, nobody would say that there's hate. Nobody would say that there's separation. Nobody would say, and I would say, at a fundamental level, at a at a deep spiritual, cosmic, collective consciousness level, that is true. And it is also true that this system of which you speak, legalized, codified for centuries, is very much one that affects our intergenerational trauma that we inherit as white people of whiteness, right. that we then perpetuate harm. And that the whole point of a mindful path is non-harming. That's right. You can't do that if you're not aware. And I think your book does that. It teaches us how to be aware because it's like, you got the receipts. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I hate to say it. I hate to say that there are so many of them, but you have them. There are, yeah. So, I mean, we have maybe about 10 minutes or so left. Um, And and, and I want to, I mean, there's so many things that we could unpack and get into, but is there something specific that you'd like to share and make sure that listeners get to? Yeah, well, I'd love for um, folks to understand um, just how significant this um, legal policy imposition of whiteness has been literally from the founding of this nation throughout its history. Um, and it, so if I can, I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I can give a couple examples. Please do. Yeah. Help people see. And again, these there are thousands of these, and I'm just going to highlight a couple. I already talked about the law. The naturalization law of 1790 required you be white to naturalize. For 150 years, um, conferring advantage to those seen as white, giving them access to citizenship and therefore a political voice, right? Huge. Not only that, but that one law, the um, naturalization law of 1790, it was used as support for for um, major legal decisions like Dred Scott, where people of African, our Supreme Court said people of African descent are in fact, even if you're born here, are not citizens of this country because the founders never intended them to be. Um, it influenced the passage of countless other laws that that required white people be in managerial positions relative to um, melanated people. Um, and alien land laws, which were uh, laws passed that prohibited people. It, here's the language, right? Because we lo- it loses the racial um, clue. Those who are ineligible for naturalization, um, it made it illegal for them to hold to own land, and then a year later to even rent land. And so it was a way of saying non-white people, but they didn't have to say it. Hmm. So that's just one law. So let me shift to the 1950s. Uh, when the Housing Act was passed, this devoted um, billions of dollars to the construction of homes. Our nation had more people than homes. And um, the law required required that in order to access these funds, the developer, um, if they were building any houses that would be sold to a white person, the entire development was required by law and policy to be white only. So we racially segregated our country even more than it already was by virtue of this law and policy. Furthermore, um, the Housing Act also required that there were some funds made available for construction of homes for non-white people. Um, And 
the amount of money given for a house for a white person was more than the money given for each house for um, melaninated people. Mm. So we're still living with, even though now those racial, um, racially unequal policies and laws have been removed, the consequences of those laws continues to promote economic inequality today. Why? Because substandard housing construction hasn't um, increased in value at the rate that um, better quality, excuse me, housing construction has. And so people are realizing um, uh, increased home value and that persists today. So even though we remove these laws, they continue to produce um, uh, inequality on the basis of one's race. And then let's jump to um, the Highway Act in the in the 1960s, where um, the billions of dollars was devoted to the construction of um, uh, in the 1950s, rather of the highway system, mm-hmm. and disproportionately across this country, well-established neighborhoods of of people of uh, black and brown people actually disproportionately were plowed through. Not well-established um, neighborhoods owned by white people, but well-established um, and, and many middle-class neighborhoods of people of African descent and Latinx across this country plowed through for the construction of our interstate system. Again, these were built-in features. Um, and so lots of people say to me, well, you know, Dr. Bataloura, you're um, some of my students will say, you know, we're talking about all these laws that that are now removed from the books. But it here's what's important. Because we have only removed um, the, the law that created the original inequality, right. and we have not addressed reparations. Right. <laughs> it's one thing to take away, like, getting punched in the nose. It's another thing to give someone some gauze and some medicine so that it heals. Exactly. Because I, like, what I like to say is, look, imagine we're playing the game of Monopoly, and I get to go around 10 times before you're allowed to move, right? You're just stuck on a piece of property. And by the way, every time it's your turn, even though you can't roll because the law doesn't let you roll, you have to pay me a little bit because I own it. Um, Kimberly and so Jones that, did a piece on that. Yeah, so ten, so I get to go around 10 times and now you get to play. Right. It's all equal now, right? Everything's fair. It's ridiculous. Of course it's not. And that that inequality that the initial prohibition created... It the just wealth pro- inequality. Absolutely. And, and it's not even... I mean, the wealth inequality is probably the the most obvious, right? We can most easily get to that. But you think about all the other inequalities of uh, self-esteem, of life choices, right? All of, of um, protection and lack thereof, things that we're seeing play out in front of us right now. Right, right. And I, as you're saying all of this, I'm thinking about the housing thing. That's why I was just focusing on the economics, because that's, of course, the whole driver, which again, from a mindfulness perspective, when we talk about when the Buddhist teaching is there's suffering and there's a cause of suffering and the cause of suffering is greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's the recognition of that. And then the path out is to be mindful, which includes the ethical path and the path of virtue and the path of reclaiming humanity and actually having a framework for that. And so this is an invitation to actually apply some of these teachings in real life. But the this idea of, um, 
you know, greed is the economic piece, I think, that even started this whole mess, which, um, uh, you know, is, is, is part of it. And to that end, I look at people like the Bradens, I believe Carl and Ann Braden, who are the ones who are actually um, some of the white allies, if you will, uh, in the, in, you know, maybe 50 years ago or something like that, that I believe bought a house and gave it to uh, a Black family, or not gave it to, but sold it to. Um, and that, you know, in, in, in contrast to what, for example, your you know, saying like in a way to subvert yep. um, and that they were then uh, penalized for that yep. and that yep. the family was essentially, I think, driven out. Yeah. So it's not like there's no allies. There's not like, and you know, this is just for, for folks that, you know, take heart. There are, you know, there are, there are people out there who've been fighting um, who are white and white, you know, inheritors of, of, of whatever you want to call it, European descended um, you know, folks, whatever that means. Um, and those, there are those who became white, but even in my case, my Italian family, I was just reading for the first time the other day about the lynching of, of 11, uh, nearly a dozen Italians in, um, New Orleans, uh, back in the late 1800s, because, uh, at that time they were not seen as white. And so this whole understanding that you help bring through your research, through your work, through your teaching, I think is so critical because I don't think it's the complete picture. What happened with you, that heart shift, that aha moment, I would just, I mean, if I could sort of have an invitation for the world, right? I would hope that it would happen for everyone and that there would be some recognition there that like there's something wrong here and broken here and that it also is something that can be healed and repaired. Absolutely. I, I guess before we end, I want to just affirm to people, especially those who have been labeled white from the moment of their birth, that we're not stuck, that we, we have been born into a society that is deeply embedded in white supremacy and it, and it does damage us, but we can heal and grow and, and be able to become people who are labeled white, who can have genuine relationships with people um, who are melaninated. Am I saying that right? I'm laughing. Melanated, melanated, it doesn't matter. Black people, just say black people, BIPOC, people of color, AAPI, it doesn't matter. People who are non-white, whatever yeah. that means. I don't, you know, I don't like using race, even mm-hmm. though I know I have to, because I know it's a construct. And so I tend to use ethnicity when possible, or I tend to use, you know, whatever the person's identifier or, cho- you know, whatever. But for the purposes of this conversation, because that's how people constructed the division and the separation around, you know, skin pigmentation, that was their deciding factor. Um, that's why I, I say sometimes <laughs> the melanation. <laughs> I'm like I that found that it, it's just it's an extra time. syllable. It's okay. It's it's all good. <laughs> it's all no no. You're good. Please. I mean, if you get another degree, we would have no letters left in the alphabet. Um, okay. <laughs> so again, the book is "Birth of a White Nation: The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today." Doctor. Jacqueline Battalora, Jackie Battalora, um, is our guest here on Rerooted. And you can learn more um, about her just by Googling um, or JacquelineBattalora.com. And her second edition of this book is coming out by Rutledge uh, in the next year. And, and, and she continues to teach today. And um, I just wanted to really extend my gratitude to you for sharing your wisdom, your insight, your personal stories, your empathy, and um, just for staying in the I don't want to say staying in the fight because even that is imperialist language. Staying on the path. 
Yeah, thank you. I love that. Mm. Thank you. Take good care. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.